This special Xmas episode, we let the audience interview us for a change using the questions they sent us and we'll answer them now. Uh, I'm here with Tom, Allen, and JT. Uh, so stay tuned for our interesting answers to your questions. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 434. It's Christmas time. Recorded on the 15th of December 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow for various offerings that you can uh, check out for this episode or others. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. I'm Tom Jones. Come on, Alan. <laughs> and I'm Alan Jude. Well, uh, yeah, but it, I can't do and I'm Alan Jude if I'm not the last person. No. <laughs> I know. Exactly. That was my evil plan the whole time. Obviously, I'm JT. Oh, well, you could have informed me. <laughs> yeah. So as you see, we are uh, a bit more than the usual crew. So we have AJ, JT, TJ, and BR, so I'm the odd man out here. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, this is our special Christmas episode that we've been nagging you about for a couple episodes in the past now, so that you uh, can send us questions. And today we're answering, I guess, most of them or all of them even, uh, that got sent to us via our usual channel, Feedback at BSD Now, the TV. And we have them here and should get right into them. Yeah, so the first question is for the three of you. Um, I'll say the question and then we'll just go around. Uh, in your opinion, what are the pros and cons of each of the three major BSDs for desktop use? For example, when is OpenBSD, FreeBSD, or NetBSD the better choice over the other two? Okay, I guess I can go first. Um, I mostly use FreeBSD because it's what I'm familiar with. So the case is I know how to do everything and I know where all the pieces are. Um, I definitely see advantages of OpenBSD uh, or the, especially the laptop use because of its more uh, lived in mantra and just that more of the developers are using it uh, full time as their laptop as well. Um, not that there aren't lots of people using FreeBSD desktops or laptops as their daily drivers. I myself included uh, have a FreeBSD desktop that I use on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, I don't know that there's any one of them that's that's better as a laptop or desktop it mostly comes down to whichever one you like more you make into the machine you use i go next okay so i would uh check out if i what kind of environment am i into going like is it a different country or is it a very highly secure environment where not everything should be carried out and probably openbsd would be my choice um, for for a laptop, that is. And if I want to make sure that it's working with all the machines that I may find there, then I'll probably pick uh, NetBSD. But as Alan said, NetBSD is his uh, BSD of choice, so that's what my choice would be as well because I used it on both desktop and laptop and I have best experiences there. But as he also said, they can all be... Uh, good desktops and de laptop environments. We had a couple of uh, tutorials or how-tos uh, last year 
that exactly describe this. And I'm fairly sure that many things will work just the same. Do, do you use FreeBSD on the desktop, Benedict? Uh, I have one right here where Graphs is, is sitting on. Uh, I don't run it very often, but if I do, it's a FreeBSD box that I run uh, with um, i3 and yeah, the usual things that I do there, browsing and email and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think that the answer is very similar for me as well. I mean, it's not a great question because we're all involved in the FreeBSD project. Uh, well, the three, the three of us are involved in the FreeBSD project. And so we're going to just pick FreeBSD because we like it enough that we use it. I, I run FreeBSD on a desktop. Um, I run it as, on a laptop as well. I would pick FreeBSD. ZFS is a miracle. Um, and then having um, Beehive and good hardware support and up-to-date graphics support is really good. Um, I think OpenBSD is maybe... A, OpenBSD can give you a very lean system. And so if you're running older hardware, you might actually do very well with OpenBSD. Not that it's not possible with FreeBSD, but I think the defaults tend more to leanness on OpenBSD. And if I had to um, use a Microvax or uh, an, an old uh, 68K Mac, I'd, I'd actually be quite happy using OpenBSD or NetBSD. Yeah, my first thought for NetBSD was like, if I bought some little handheld thing from one of those back alleys in Japan, I bet that NetBSD would be the thing that would work on it. <laughs> or if you needed to, you know, run a toaster. I guess that's the uh, NetBSD go-to as well. So the next question is for me, and is how is the BSD Net podcast uh, recorded and rolled out? Uh, well, basically, the production process is during the week, I will look for stories and news articles, and Benedict, Tom, and Alan will sometimes send me links that they found. Uh, and then I kind of pull all that together go through them all, figure out what's going to be best for a show. Sometimes I'll try to have a theme for the show and that doesn't always work out. Sometimes I try to get a story from every, you know, every major BSD release, but sometimes that doesn't work out. But once I get the the stories picked out, then I write the show notes. And then on Wednesday, whoever's going to be recording that episode, they get together, they record it, and then they give me the audio. And then once I have the audio, I bring that into DaVinci Resolve. I do all the editing, the cutting, all that fun stuff fixing the little audio things here and there, and then export, and then upload, and then do the process all over again the next week, or next two weeks, depending on how our recording schedule is. J JT, do you have any idea uh, how much time you put into the uh, production pre and post for a show? Um, if I had to sum it all up, I would probably say per show between four and six hours. Probably a week. That is why you should support our Patreon to help you yeah, do this. Right. <laughs> and is the process for your own podcast different? Or uh, so the podcasts that I do myself are. I mean, it's basically the same, roughly, um, except there's not really show notes per se. Like for instance, for open source voices, like I have an idea of questions I want to ask, but it's mostly just a conversation. So we start the conversation. I ask you a few questions, and then we just we take it from there. Uh, and for that, I record both sides of the audio. So, but then the post-processing is, is, of course, all the same. It's importing it into DaVinci Resolve, doing the editing, the cutting, and all that, and then exporting it. Yeah, I guess that was the one part maybe we didn't uh, make clear is that when we're recording an episode, including this one, uh, each of the people will be recording their own audio locally. And we do a kind of a sync at the beginning. Uh, and then we send those individual files to uh, JT to put together. Uh, and using that sync point to try to line them all up. Uh, and that's one of the advantages we got by switching to audio only from when we used to do video 
is the fact we can now deconflict the audio a bit because we have each person's voice as a separate track. And so when people talk over each other, it can be to some degree fixed instead of just having, you know, that garbled noise you get when too many people are talking at once. Yeah, it's easier to, to clip the audio and kind of stretch things out and move things around. And it's kind of hard to do that with video unless, you know, people don't mind, you know, Benedict's face freezing halfway through while I extend, while I extend Alan's audio out so Benedict can then talk. Uh, it could be interesting to look at, but uh, I think most people would be a little uh, disconcerted about that. <laughs> um, so moving on, uh, the next question is, what is the most expensive thing that you have ever broken or lost? I don't have a good answer for that. One. So I could go ahead. Bennett. I could start with mine. So um, that was the predecessor laptop from this one. Uh, I had it maybe one or two weeks and then um, I had this, you know, messenger bag back then where it, where it was in. And so at one point I was coming out of our office building, I'm not sure. And the, the bag basically dropped from my shoulder and onto the yeah pavement basically with the laptop inside. But it, it wasn't damaged too much, but one of the the edges of the of the screen were a bit dented, and so I had to. It was always a little bit <laughs> not unstable in that regard, in that corner. It was no damage; the glass was fine, but it always had this dent that reminded me to be very careful with new hardware. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, I think the most expensive thing I've ever lost was uh, a Motorola Razor that fell out of my pocket. Um, and I think the most expensive thing I broke was an iPod Nano by putting iPod Linux on it. And I managed to brick the iPod. And then the iPod Linux forum people just shouted at me that it was impossible to brick the iPod. And I was like, but I have I have it. It's bricked. It's bricked. I can't do anything. Of course, with Tom, I was half expecting the answer to be some kind of like satellite downlink station that he's managed to yeah. break. <laughs> Alan, have you figured out what uh, what yours was? Not really. It doesn't have to be computing. It's very hard not to lose things. I guess like I had a fancy HDMI adapter thing for my Mac, which uh, <laughs> at a conference I lent to someone to use, and then it got used a couple times, and then I forgot to go get it back and then went home. Yeah, for me, I I would have to say this falls under lost, but it doesn't. It's not really lost. It's more stolen. Uh, since they asked for the most expensive thing, uh, I, in 2011, my car was broken into in Baltimore and my uh, little netbook was stolen, which just happened to have my Bitcoin wallet on it, which had over a thousand Bitcoin in it at the time. Wow. Now, at the time, Bitcoin was only, this was like spring of 2011. So Bitcoin was, it had just crossed over a dollar. So it wasn't super valuable at the time. It was just more annoying. Uh, now, though, that's a... Uh, that's a little little more expensive. Although, to be fair, I probably would have sold it long before now. Uh, but that would be my most wow. expensive. In retrospect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the next question is, what is the latest book you have read? And what is the next book you are planning on reading? Uh, so the one I'm in the middle of right now is called Punk's War. It's uh, about naval fighter aviation uh, by Ward Carroll, who's a recently popular YouTuber I've been watching a lot of. Um, and then what do I plan to read next? Uh, you know, I'm feeling nostalgic, so I'll probably go read uh, The Hunt for Red October again. So for me, um, I'm reviewing Code Vicious, uh, George Neville Neal's book at the moment, but I guess this is work-related of sorts. So uh, uh, my past book that I just finished was Eight Weeks to Optimum Health by uh, Andrew Whale. 
W-E-A-W-E-I-L. So that's basically, hey, here's a, uh, like you remember these programming books, like one language in 21 days. So this is about health, of course, uh, but not only about, um, you know, get more exercise and eat more veggies, but also, um, you know, learning about health and what you can do there and not just um, the general stuff that you will always hear, but also like breathing exercises and cooking recipes are in there. That's pretty cool. And so you can really build this up over time and you can mix and match and stuff. I mean, there's stuff in there that you probably don't need or won't won't apply right away, but it's certainly interesting to look at that. Uh, It's been a couple of years old by now, but seems like still relevant. So, and I'm currently reading... Um, I just started it, the Benjamin Franklin uh, American Life uh, biography by Walter Isaacson. Um, not particularly because I'm interested in biographies, but I uh, have always been interested in, you know, colonial America and the history there. So that's probably a good addition to that. And my next book is probably going to be uh, Principles, Life and Work by Ray Dalio. Dalio, I think. Yeah. And that's um, been recommended a couple of times, but I haven't gotten around to reading it. So that's probably the next one. So the the most recent book I read technically is um, Vend by Tim Easley which is um, photographs of vending machines in Tokyo. Um, but it's a book of photos, so it's not really a book. Um, really recently, I read Laser Writer 2 by uh, Tamara Shopson, um, which is a fiction book about an Apple repair shop, I think like the end of the 90s, like start of the 2000s. And it is really weird, but I also read it in one day. And it's it's not a big book. It's like 200 pages, but I just read it because it was really addictive and I just went straight through it and I, I really enjoyed it. I recommend you pick it up. Um, I'm currently reading right now um, The Art of Doing Science and Engineering uh, by Richard Hamming. Um, this is available freely as a PDF, but it was published by Stripe. It was reissued by Stripe um, two years ago. Um and physically, it is a beautiful book, and, and Richard Hamming writes really well. And uh, Richard Hamming of uh, Hamming Distance and, and Hamming Codes. Um, it's a really good book. I really enjoy it. It's based off a course he used to teach. So for myself, uh, the last book I read was Chapter House Dune, um, with the recent Villeneuve movie coming out uh, to cover the first book. I uh, decided I haven't read those in a while, so let me go back and, and blitz through them again to remind myself. So I've been working through all of those, and I just finished up Chapter House Dune. Um, As far as what I'm going to read next, I have an old copy of uh, The Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte that I've been meaning to read, but I just haven't gotten around to it, so I think I'm finally going to knock that out. Um, Next question is, uh, do you prefer a desktop, a laptop, or a tablet? Uh, Definitely a desktop for me. Uh, Like I have a, a laptop, and I use that at conferences, but if I'm, you know, if I'm at my house, I'm sitting at a desktop. I have, uh, you know, my work, my gaming computer up here, that the, the where I do the podcast from, and then a FreeBSD desktop downstairs where I do most of my work from. Uh, and between those two machines, uh, you know, I like a really big monitor and I like my loud keyboard and my big heavy mouse. Uh, and so every time I use a laptop, I feel like I'm scrunched in a tiny box. Uh, and so... Uh, definitely a desktop person. Mm-hmm. So I'm more like a laptop guy. So at work, I hook it up, of course, to a bigger screen and 
with a laptop riser and external peripherals so i'm not hunched over it too much uh at home i can also switch to the desktop i mentioned earlier um, but sometimes it's just hey you sit with a laptop somewhere and i also gotten a bit more uh, using the um the ipad mini that i have because now that they support from the mac that you can use it as an external screen so you can have a little bit of a smaller screen right next and that comes in handy when i'm teaching so i have the slides on one of the um, desktop and or one of the um, screens and the other one is doing the presenter mode things like that i have a freebsd desktop it's a 10th generation i3 NUC. it's not a very good computer um I really like being able to to sit on the sofa and type, and so I'm always sort of torn between um, having a having a desktop and a laptop. I think I prefer laptops. I'm quite a firm believer that computers which are loud should be far away, um, and then ideally you would then be able just to use any really nice, like cheap laptop. But I found that cheap laptops are a false economy. Uh, so I think a laptop. I think prefer laptops. I definitely fall into the desktop category uh, for a couple reasons. One, I like screen real estate, and if you get a laptop with a big enough screen, it's effectively a desktop that you're lugging around. So kind of defeats the purpose. Um, and I like multiple screens, and you can't really do that with a laptop very well. And also for me, sitting down at the desk to do work, it helps focus. Rather than me just sitting anywhere around my house and grabbing a laptop, I'm less likely to be totally committed to what I need to work on and easily distracted. So for me, it's a desktop. And as far as a tablet, I don't know if I really trust people that use <laughs> tablets as their uh, primary computing device. Like, I don't know if I can actually say that, but I, that's kind of how I feel anytime somebody's like, well, I just use a tablet all the time. <laughs> so you must not do any real work i, I, I went email. to the last bsd cam so the cambridge on conference with a gpd pocket and an ipad as my only way to compute so i don't know what you would have thought of me jt well no i had a gpd pocket that that, that counts it's a, as, a, as a laptop as far as i'm concerned it has a keyboard has a screen you know it's it's small i think i actually had the pocket two um but that counts as a laptop in my book so you're safe <laughs> Okay, uh, next question is, what is your favorite peripheral device? Which is kind of an odd question, but I thought it was interesting when we got it in. I don't know. I'm guessing my loud keyboard. So I would have said probably the mouse, because for some desktop -y things, you would need it. But now that I've gotten more into i3 and learned more about um, uh, Vim also without using the mouse too much, that kind of made me glue to the um, keyboard more. I completely can't remove the mouse at the moment, but it's getting used less and less, or at least the trackpad on the tablet or the notebook. I, I, I think I have a keyboard problem. Um, I have a lot of keyboards. Right now I'm using the cheapest mechanical keyboard I could buy on Amazon, and I quite like it. Uh, but before I was using a Korn um, split keyboard that I built from a kit. I've previously used uh, a 30% keyboard to the Gherkin that I built uh, with PCBs I bought that somebody else designed, and which is an ortholinear um, keyboard with only 30 keys on it. Before that, I had a 40% um, ortholinear keyboard. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I think I like keyboards. I don't really care about mice. Yeah, I like keyboards, but I, I want 100% size, none of those tiny things. Yeah, so I like keyboards, but I always liked kind of odd keyboards. Like the one keyboard that I have... Uh, 
that I'm not using right now, it's in my office, is it's actually a point of sale keyboard. So it has a credit card reader, which seems kind of random, but I actually found that it's really good for passwords because you can have a stupidly long, complex password and you just <laughs> save it on the card. And when you swipe the card, it inputs that as a, you typing on a keyboard. So I could just actually save it onto the card. And then just anytime I needed to use this really long password, I could just swipe in. So that was cool. But that it has um, rubber domes. So it's actually really bad to use as a keyboard for long periods of time. So for favorite peripheral device, I would probably have to say my um, it's a it's a MIDI device that I have. Uh, obviously, for those that are listening to the podcast, it's a Arturia BeatStep Pro. and it, uh, I have a program which allows me to turn MIDI sequence into keystrokes or macros. So when I'm doing photo editing, I can tie in the buttons and the knobs to different editing things. So instead of like, you know, on in a photo program, like grabbing a slider to slide it up and down for some effect, mm. I instead just have a nice little turn wheel, um, which makes it a little bit more natural to edit things than dealing with this little panel with all these tiny little sliders. What, what do you use to edit photos, JT? Capture One, uh, which is a raw photo editor by a company called Phase One. They make medium format digital cameras, very expensive, like $60,000 cameras. And many years ago, they made the software for their cameras. And they're like, we should just sell this to anybody else who wants to use it. And I was doing some work for somebody who used it and kind of learned it through that and then just kept using it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how keyboards are a very personal thing. And I would have... I mean, I've, I I saw uh, Tom's keyboard once and he was like, hey, Benedict, try to type in something. And I just couldn't. It's so weird. But he knows how to use this perfectly. And it's the best password protection of his computer, I guess. I, yeah, like the th thing about the weird keyboards is um, I didn't start out with a really weird keyboard. I started out with like a change to an ortholineal keyboard. So normal keyboards are staggered. So like T and G on my keyboard are not lined up. Ortholinear, they're it's just like 3D in a, chess. Yeah, and they're just in a they're just in a square grid. Um, so I went to like a forty percent keyboard, and it took me like five months to learn how to type on this keyboard. Um, <laughs> when I went from the forty percent to the thirty percent, it was about an hour because like the brain was ready and I could go between them, and then going to a split was quite quick. Um, yeah, like you, you have to put in some serious effort sometimes to learn how to type again, but it, it could be worth it, I guess, if you if you want. <laughs> So you're more productive that way or just happier. type faster? I mean, I'm just happier. Mm. I mean, I'm happiest typing on a typewriter, but you can't do that for mm. long. It really hurts your hands. But <laughs> it's really <laughs> satisfying to have a hammer to put letters on the page. So how does that work with you preferring laptops? Like, have you found crazy laptops with weird keyboards? No, no, I just use an external keyboard. I mean, I, I do, I've done what Benedict does where I put the laptop in a stand. Okay. Because I'm, I'm well aware that my body uh, has got to keep doing this computer stuff for a long time. So I'm, I'm normally, not right now, because I'm not at home, uh, quite uh, eager to have good ergonomics for how I'm sat. But right now I'm, I'm not like, curled in a ball on a squeaky old office chair. All right. So the next question is, if you were to live somewhere else, in the, I assume in the world, uh, where would it be? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, with, you know, traveling for BSD conferences, I've been to quite a few interesting places. But I think uh, two of my favorites have really been like Norway and Sweden. I've, I've liked both of those and I could see myself living there and I already have some family in Sweden, so that could help. Uh, I also really like Japan, but I don't know if I'd want to live there. And the, and, and the main advantage of, of both Norway and Sweden is you can get by with English a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, for me, it would also be 
Tokyo, I mean, there's only a minor or a couple of minor things that I would say, oh, this is a game uh, or a deal breaker for me not living there. But otherwise, country is nice, people are nice, very friendly to uh, non-Japanese speaking people. You can get around with a little bit of, you know, hand waving and <laughs> trying to make yourself heard. I also like Canada a lot. So these two. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to live on the edge of a big forest, maybe on the side of a mountain. That'd be really good for running and cycling. Um, I really like Scotland. It's a very nice place. I, like Alan, have traveled a lot for conferences. Um, but because you're always visiting cities, it's really difficult to get a sense of what a place is like. Um, I did drive the length of New Zealand and I really liked New Zealand, but it would basically mean like completely turning off my entire life and abandoning my family because it's too, it's, it's like a, a 40 hour journey to go between here and there. So it's not something you do want to do very often. Um, but yeah, like a, a cabin on a mountain would be quite nice. Mm. And for me, it's like, I like countries going there, but also like coming back and appreciating what I have here. Like if you have to comparison with other countries, you're like, oh, that's what they do, but we do it in this way. One day might, or one time might be better, one time not. And so it's kind of nice to come back also after a long trip and appreciate the things that you have in your own country. So for me, it would probably be somewhere like Alaska or the Tamir Allen um somewhere in Scandinavia, like Sweden, Finland, or Norway. Um, I like cold mountainous regions. Uh, and to follow up on that, uh, the next question is, how many languages do each of you speak? Um, just half of one, really. <laughs> <laughs> just English and barely. So I have my mother tongue, German, uh, then, of course, English that you probably have to hear every week. Uh, and I did a little bit of Japanese course on Duolingo and then switched to uh, Spanish now, but I probably couldn't order a pizza in both languages. But I'm learning. I, I keep at it. So it's good to kind of see what other languages are like and how they are structured. Uh, I, I can speak English, but I'm definitely not going to assert how much. Um, and I know about 600 words of German through Duolingo. So obviously English for me. Uh, I also used to be fluent in French, but I am horrible at it now because I haven't used it for like 20 years. I keep telling myself that, oh, I'll relearn it, but then I never do. Um, hopefully one of these days I will. But then I run into the thing of if I don't ever use it again, I'm just going to forget it again. So it kind of makes sense that if I'm going to learn it again, I actually need to be able to use it more so I can retain it. Uh, the next question we have is... What is the most recent project that you learned of that you are really excited about? I think uh, Pavel Doadek is working on a block reference table, uh, a way to do profile cloning in ZFS. Uh, and this is uh, making me have all kinds of interesting ideas, and I'm very excited to see this. And, you know, he's got to the point where he has a working prototype that he's demoed on the, the ZFS leadership call. So it's uh, quite a, a good ways around, too. Mm-hmm. So I did a training last, no, it was this year actually, about uh, Elasticsearch, you know, Kibana, Grafana, and uh, Logstash, and what's the other thing? Oh, Elasticsearch. And so now that I looked at it and used it on FreeBSD or try to use it, I also look at OpenSearch, and that's what I'm currently going into because it's a bit of a, 
a different game. You probably heard the the rumors or the, the fallout in the project there. Um, so I'm looking at OpenSearch at the moment to, you know, do all the kind of log processing that I'm doing. Well, so I have a, a column that's that's launching in the next issue of the FreeBSD Journal where I look at um, work in progress projects and things that could do with external testing. Um, and so I'd love people to tell me more about projects that they find exciting. I'm actually really interested right now in what I'm going to cover um, the January, February issue of the journal where I'm going to speak to Dan Langle about his make jail tools, which is just like a thin set of shims to improve the the jail system in FreeBSD. It's like a small shell script. I know there were dozens of these already, but um, I think the people working on this are, have been doing FreeBSD for a long time and have a great idea of uh, what is needed. And they seem to be making a tool that might actually be able to land in the base, which would be really nice. It'd be good to get just some nicer tooling around jails in FreeBSD. You know, I have, I have negative time as it is. So getting involved in another project uh, doesn't sound that appetizing at the moment. Um, there's so many things I'd like to... All the time yeah. in the world. Like all of them. There's so much cool stuff going on. Um, but probably just more ZFS stuff. <laughs> there's so many ideas that just, you know, need people to, to fall in love with them and spend time on them. Yeah, for me, it's same. You have a lot of interests, but no time to pursue them. But in this case, so I currently have a student that's doing its uh, or his undergraduate thesis about writing a port for FreeBSD. And I'm kind of the, the contact in the project, but I'm nowhere near being a ports person, but kind of learning with him, uh, pointing him, hey, ask this person or look in the handbook over here. And so it's, um, maybe I could do this if I had more time. But it's interesting uh, work, definitely. And it kind of makes you appreciate the people doing it uh, even more. So this is one thing I could probably, if I had more time, get behind. So for me, I'm a little bit behind the times, but I just started to actually read about this and learn about it. And I thought it was really cool. And that's a lot of the stuff that uh, SmartOS did with uh, Crossbow and Triton. And just the way that they've they've done that. I've, again, I've just started to learn about it. Um, I'm probably five years late to the party as far as what that is, but, uh, yeah, I thought it was cool when I heard about it. So sort of along that same line, uh, what is one programming language that you wish you were better in? Probably C, you know, I'm getting pretty good, but you know, I'm nowhere near good enough. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it would probably be, uh, Python because the everyone's using it at the moment or it's kind of popular so maybe i should go behind it or um i looked a little bit at rust so i liked what i saw but i didn't get any further in, in learning it uh, because that's probably also going to be interesting in operating systems uh, world in the next couple of years if not already i thought brad and i were going to teach you c at one point benedict yeah right <laughs> how many hours do you have available <laughs> But yeah, I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> Don't hold back. I get Benedict's source bit. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> well, technically, I earned my source bit doing almost entirely just shell. Yeah, there's. It doesn't have to be C all over. The, the source tree is big. But if you guys are going to teach Benedict C, make sure you record the whole thing so we can turn that into an educational series. It will be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it will be. If I can do it, everyone can. 
<laughs> and I mean, I, I can program and I do it in my in my lecture with, with shell scripting and other similar things in Arc, but it's probably one level more that I need to get uh, proficient enough. But that's what BSD needs. Its own reality TV show about Benedict learning C. <laughs> exactly. Like, right. The donations will come flooding in as Probably soon as we start better. producing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you I, heard it here first. <laughs> I, I think, uh, like Alan, I'd like to get better at C. Um, I, I see this stuff that comes to the FreeBSD source tree um, with compilers and... Um, the linker and all the guts of how the language actually turns into reality. And it's always very intimidating to see the the depths of things you don't know. Um, I'd also like to be any good at writing shell scripts, but I'd also not like to be good at writing shell scripts because I write too many shell scripts. Yeah, I guess like I'd also probably benefit from learning a bit about Lua now that FreeBSD is using that quite a bit. Uh, but I've just never taken the time. Oh, uh, Lua is easy, but it doesn't have continue for for loops. So, you know, don't get caught. So for myself, it would just be C++ because, well, I think that's going to be my answer for the rest of my life because you, you never, it's, C++ is one of those languages that you never learn all of it. Like no matter how much you learn, there's always more to learn. Um, there's no end to that language, just like C. You can, you can learn everything, but then there's still new things you can learn about how to use it. Um, so yeah, because I, I there's a lot of things I want to do with Lumina that I just I don't know how to do in C and Qt. So it's like I want to do this really cool thing, and I have no idea how to do that thing. So it'd be helpful to know more. And the next question we have is what is one what if scenario in tech history that you're most fascinated about? Well, an obvious one would be like, you know, if the the AT&T lawsuit didn't happen, and then so Linux didn't happen because BSD stuck around, what would the world look like? Uh, or even just, what if Sun hadn't got slurped up by Oracle and had kept being like the old Sun? What, where would we be now? What other cool technology might have come out of that? Yeah, I would have said the same thing about Sun or uh, like if they would have survived, how would they be now with the whole ZFS and the other things they put in open source? Um, for something else, maybe, uh, what if Apple weren't as successful as it became again after the big, uh, uh, decline it had. So that would be certainly an interesting world we were living in. Yeah. I, I immediately thought of Sun too. Um, it'd be really interesting to, to see a world where Microsoft and Apple's Unix attempts, um, hadn't been dropped if they'd been sincere, uh, cause a UX was really interesting. Um. I don't know anything about Xenix. I would like to see the world where TCP uh, had a length field in its header, um, but that's just because it's annoyed me for a long time and it's one of the biggest mistakes we've made in, in history, but we made it for good reasons. So like the rest of you, my big one is the sun issue. Partly on what if sun had just stayed independent, but also what if when sun was going to be acquired, if IBM's acquisition was successful so that it never ended up at Oracle. Because say what you will about IBM, I think they would have been a better steward than Oracle has been. And hopefully that won't trigger mm. Oracle's legal team. <laughs> <laughs> you said I think, so. Yeah. Um, so our next question is, if you weren't working in IT, what would you like to do for a career? Honestly, I think the thing that always kind of tickled the, my fancy in the back there was kind of the 
the cross between analytics and logistics. So like figuring out optimal supply chain flows and, and things of that nature. Uh, you know, I always had weird ideas about how to change the way, you know, grocery stores stock things and make things available. Um, and, you know, kind of some of that I've seen, like, you know, I think Amazon now has a thing where you can subscribe to a certain product for a discount and, they, you know, send you one every two weeks or whatever. And, and to, by making their supply chain more predictable, you get this discount and stuff. Although with the pandemic, I have much less interest in working at a grocery store now. <laughs> and just, you know, having seen the way people act in a grocery store, if you go a little bit beyond what's normal and it's like, yeah, actually, I, I don't want anything, you know, consumer facing. Yeah. So for me, outside of IT, which is always difficult because it's kind of covering a lot of areas now, but I, when I was young, maybe in my tens or so, I always wanted to be a, some kind of private detective where I was like, you know, solving riddles and, you know, crimes and stuff. Uh, so that could probably be something that's a bit less uh, IT related. It still has enough components there, um, but something like that. We could, uh, we could have the the reality TV show where Benedict learns C has to solve crimes. You get more ideas yeah. every, every time I answer something. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of the, 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 one time, become... uh, the one time I did some work as, uh, kind of as a private detective and started looking at like getting a private detective's license and so on, but it was all IT related. So that doesn't work for this answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think this is for a second season then. Yeah, second season, of course. <laughs> Well, here's a question, Benedict. After you write uh, Pool Boy, are you going to then do a, a ZFS crime novel? Oh, yes. funny you should mention that. I Today I got the the first rendered version, how it would look like, and it had these like awesome androids on it. And But the editor was like, yeah, we shouldn't, shouldn't probably use those there because it involves robots in a, in a side plot. Uh, but then it started to become, hey, if people like the story, would you be interested to write more in, of this type and then we were already talking about a book and i'm like okay i'm, I'm becoming the next code vicious probably um <laughs> i think it's more like savage by system d something like that yeah so it's going to become something more than just an article in a previously journal <laughs> uh, why do you why do i put up with folks like you this was your idea trouble yeah it was that was yeah that i'm yeah totally guilty of as a as a teenager, I wanted to be a, a photographer. Um, I'm really glad I did not pursue that career because I think that got very heavily disrupted by like phones and stuff. Uh, I was offered a job as a dairy farmer this year. Uh, I turned it down, but you know, it might be nice. Uh, so for me, I probably would have stuck with photography. Um, I kind of have a family legacy of it, and I do it part time now throughout the year. Uh, so if I wasn't doing IT stuff, that's probably what I would do just because I could jump right into it and not have to worry about getting up to speed, so to speak. And the next question we have is, uh, what, I guess actually this ties into, or may tie into a previous question. Um, what is the most beautiful place on the planet you have been to in your opinion? So I don't know. I have a great answer for that, but I think the place that I felt was like the most serene or whatever was just one time when we were at the, the Linux hotel in Germany, uh, it was early in the morning and I don't think everybody was even awake yet. And I just was uh, standing on the edge of this like cliff overlooking the, the river below. Uh, and it was just completely quiet and morning time and, and so on. And I just, 
I really liked it there. It was it was more that moment than the the place in particular. Uh, but yeah, it was just uh, you know a quiet morning looking out on the the river and and no other sounds around. Oh yeah, I remember that place. So when I was, uh, so I did a trip a couple of years ago with my brother, like three weeks, Canada, East Coast and West Coast. And we were like, you know, that was a typical bus tour. You go somewhere, have a bit of sightseeing and you have a hotel uh, overnight and then you drive the next morning. And so one morning we were waking up at Lake Louise. That was certainly spectacular, like trees, <laughs> lake and why are you laughing? <laughs> because I was I was going to say where I've been, but I was going to say there's a the YouTuber, Andrew uh, uh, something, and he did this amazing video where he recorded audio in the center of Lake Louise when it was frozen solid. <laughs> no, that wasn't, yeah, we were <laughs> there. you were like, the, oh, I went like, to Lake Louise. I'm like, god damn it. <laughs> autumn time, not, not while, it's fr while it was frozen. But you could definitely see what uh, your beauty it has in all kinds of, um, you know, seasons. Um, but that was kind of like, wow, great. I mean, you, you never had, uh, or I never had this panorama of like mountains, trees and the, the lake in front. That was just spectacular. I live in a very beautiful country. Um, and I really, true, wanna, yeah. really wanna talk about uh, something else I did, but um, 2016, I drove around the uh, ring road of Iceland. And so I, Iceland's a small island and it has like a road, it's about a thousand kilometers. And just... Uh, just driving along the road and there being um, these massive volcanic ridges like shooting up at the ground right next to you and then being in banks of fog. And it's just such an amazing place. Uh, even like the the crappy GoPro footage I, I took just like for us driving looks amazing. Uh, it was a really beautiful place to be. So I would probably have to say the French Alps. Again, that, that cold, snowy, wintry mountain escape is, is kind of my thing yeah like i'm a little uh, spoiled like like uh, tom is but you know i live in canada uh, especially like where i grew up was a more rural area where you can you know find a quiet place and and be in trees and so on uh and so yeah i've never i never had to go far to to get that and 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 have that so it wasn't uh it didn't register the same level of of awe because it's just something i've always had access to um, but yeah, anyway. So back with another BSD related question, and that is what is the first version, um, of the BSDs that you installed on your own hardware? I think, so I think the first version I installed on my own machine was FreeBSD 4.2 or 4.1 RC1. Uh, when I started my hosting company in 2002, uh, and so yeah, I installed the the latest release candidate because you know by the time we put the machine in production it would be upgraded to the release so it made sense to start there rather than a version behind uh you know i'd used FreeBSD a little bit but this is the first time i was actually doing the install myself uh or you know actually having root on the machine rather than just account on the machine so mine was FreeBSD 5.2.1. So that tells you a lot about versioning that <laughs> happened back then. But for me, it was new anyway. So I didn't bother about, you know, what kind of, why did they put another uh, major minor and another number there? So that was my start. And from there, of course, I moved up and upgraded as, as was possible. Sometimes I broke the system too much and I had to reinstall with a newer version. But that was my start, 5.2.1. Uh, my my first install was probably OpenBSD four something, 
on a, a G4 iBook with 512 megabytes of RAM. Um, I think I ended up running Slackintosh on that computer because it was the best Linux for it. Um, and then I really got more involved in FreeBSD around the FreeBSD 10. Uh, I think it was when FreeBSD 11 was current and I started doing development at the university and um, TCP stuff. So for myself, the first BSD that I installed would have been OpenBSD. That would have been probably late 97. I have no idea what version it would have been. Uh, I just remember getting it installed, booting it, and then being like, all right, um, this is cool. So what do I do now? And that was pretty much where that adventure ended. Um, and then the first time I installed FreeBSD would have probably been 2003-ish. And then just kind of, you know, played around with uh, OpenBSD and FreeBSD randomly here and there when I got bored um, up until I started to get involved with uh, PCBSD. Okay. And now this one, this one is going to be a, a contentious question, I feel. I'm, I think Alan might disagree. I think Alan might disagree with this. Um, you think? Or maybe not. Maybe not. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> the question is, why is Star Trek DS9 the greatest Star Trek of all time? Because it just did. <laughs> Is there anyone who disagrees with that? Um, the characters and the, the the kind of growth over time is just so much more than almost any other show that I can think of, let alone any of the other Star Trek. And the space battles. Yeah. And, it, yep. <laughs> and, and I mean, it really it does a good job of showing um, the, the purpose of the Federation because it's not the Federation. It's the edge of the utopian society. And there's a great episode where O'Brien goes undercover on a non-Federation world. And it's some of the best cyberpunk TV that's ever been made because it's absolutely horrible. Um, yeah, DS9 is great. I don't, I don't know why anyone would think we disagree about this. Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's a nice continuation from TNG that a lot of people liked. And it was not, oh, yet another uh, you know spaceship going to places where no one has gone before, but kind of the, the setting at, at a very stationary stationary uh, place with still a little bit of alien worlds and other scenario in there and the religious aspects that we never had before in the series. Um, and as Alan said, the, the growth over each season that it got better and better and better. Well, it was one of the, it was, you know, part of it was just when it happened uh, in that era of TV, when it was getting to the point where each episode didn't have to be self-contained and things didn't kind of reset to normal after each episode where things could actually continue. And it got to the point where, you know, you didn't have to have seen every episode for an episode to make sense, but you got more out of it if you had seen all the previous episodes. Uh, and it, you know, kind of that same formula that the X-Files used of having kind of like these quite a few episodes that are lore episodes and extend the the main background storyline, but still also having kind of the self-contained episodes so that, you know, like with, uh, I think both of the modern tracks now, like uh, Discovery and Picard, it's like the whole season is one story, which is great. But sometimes, you know, I just want an episode. So I, I will admit I was very biased against DS9 when it first came out. I was a Babylon 5 fan and, you know, it felt like, a, oh, you guys are just remixing the same concept and putting it out. I will say that now I do like DS9. I think Garrick is probably one of the best written characters um, in sci-fi. Uh, just the depth and the randomness of his character and the way that they kind of tied everything together was great. However, 
Um, since I also fervently believe that monocultures are bad, I will be the dissenting voice on this show. <laughs> and, and, and since I'm the producer, I can also edit out your comments if you disagree with me. Um, I will say that, uh, that Voyager, Voyager was the best Star Trek of all time. Oh, Voyager is really dull. <laughs> does that, does that have to do with when no. you were born? You're older than me, right? I, I was born in 79. Okay. You're, yeah. You're yeah, the yeah, of us. way older than me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because uh, when when people say that, I always I did I found Voyager to be weaker. Like I I watched the episodes. Uh so so I got into Star Trek kind of late. So actually like I most of the Star Trek I got into was in the 2000s. Uh because the Space Channel here in Canada would air them back to back to back to back. So like literally at three o'clock every afternoon was TNG. Uh, four o'clock was DS9 and five o'clock was Voyager five days a week. And then they repeated the episodes on the weekend in case you missed one. And so I was burning through all those a lot uh, after school and so on when I was finishing high school and so on. And then even staying up late and watching a different point in the plot line on some like TV channel from way up north that happened to be available on our satellite dish. Uh, so I came into it later. Uh, and so I was kind of watching DS9 and Voyager at the same time. And when you contrast the quality with the writing on the two, Voyager just comes out worse every yeah, time. Yeah, thematically, Voyager is kind of all over the place. And there's a lot of times where it's just like, thing happens that makes no sense. We're not going to explain it because the plot needs to move on. So just ignore that that made no sense and contradicted two episodes prior. You don't remember that episode anyway. Uh and as a result, like, there's some parts of the show that, for me, are just hilarious because they're bad. Like, it, they weren't intending for it to be bad, but it's just like, wow, what on earth were you guys thinking with this <laughs> plot line? You're yeah. or, or, you know, it's like watching some of the, the first season or two of TNG and being like, well, that didn't age well at <laughs> yeah, all. That <laughs> was not good. <laughs> but the whole Borg arc there, that was perfectly uh, done, I think, because they didn't have that. In but yeah, and time. I think, you know, part of Part of Voyager was probably uh, not an overreaction, but, you know, thinking, you know, if we get back to more like the TNG formula, the people that didn't like DS9 will come back. Uh, I don't think and, it really you know, worked, though, because there were wrong. so many other points of the writing that were bad. And I just love whenever these conversations come up of throwing Voyager out because it's the perfect troll. Uh, because I don't think there's many people who actually believe Voyager was the best. So it's always a good a good thing to throw out into the into the conversation and then just watch people go nuts. Right. Like uh, I would say Voyager isn't bad. Uh it's just not on the top of my list. But it's still some Star Trek and I will consume all of it that, that I can get. Yeah, which is the thing I think that at first I was quite disappointed with lower decks because the concept was so good, I wanted a serious version of it. Right, the the you know what are all the the newbies on the ship actually? What's their day like, and what kind of adventures do they have? And the cartoon is okay, but it's uh you know, and it's got lots of references and, and so on, and I don't mind it. But uh, I just wish that that premise could have become a, a serious Star Trek instead of a funny one. Yeah, not that I don't also want a funny Star Trek, just that that you know they they had this great concept and then they just used it on mm -hmm. the funny one. So last question. Uh, is if you found $20 in your front yard, name the best place to spend a max of $20 or similar with uh, your family. 
Um, and I, I'm going to change that to $100 because $20 doesn't get anywhere near what it used to. Um, and if you're taking your family out, that's, that might be a problem. Um, so we'll end on that one. Yeah. I don't know if I have a, a great answer for that. Kind of my go-to thing. If, if I have people come, uh, to visit, like when, uh, Christoph, uh, came to BSD can early and, and hung out, uh, at my house for a couple days first, uh, we did the, uh, the Warplane heritage museum, uh, which is one of the only interesting things here where I live in Hamilton. Uh, and so that's where I like to go. Uh, but you know, if my family's all been there a couple times cause I keep dragging them there. <laughs> so I don't know that it would be the great thing to do again. <laughs> uh, so I would switch it to, to a hundred euro bill. So that's probably getting us around a bit more. Uh, yeah. Now you're getting uh, lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise I would spend it in the U S because well, <laughs> good reason to go there again. Um, no, I could probably see myself and with the family go have a nice dinner or, uh, you know, lunch at a nice place, like maybe a Chinese place or a Japanese themed. Or if it has to be a museum type thing, we have one a tech museum in Sinsheim. It's maybe an hour, 45 minutes drive from here over the Autobahn. And that's kind of a nice place with, you know, a lot of planes and uh, they have an, an external uh, exhibition and internal, of course. And so there's plenty of cool things to see tech wise. When um, when Christoph and Benedict were here for Hackathon in 2019, I took them over the Spittle of Glenchee, which is one of the highest roads in the UK and, and therefore in Scotland. Um, but of course, my parents have done that and all my family have, have been over this road, even if it is beautiful. Um, I think I would probably just drag them to uh, one of my favorite coffee shops and I go to an independent coffee shop and get breakfast because... That's a nice way to spend to spend some money that you weren't expecting to have. There's a great one called um, Coffee Apothecary. Um, they serve coffee roasted by artisan roasts who are based in Glasgow, uh, which are a great roaster, and I'm sure they would ship coffee to you if you wanted it. Um, but yeah, I just I just subject people to good coffee because everyone needs good coffee. So this is kind of difficult for me to answer because there's nothing really in my area um, that is worthy of spending $100 on because I live out in a small little rural mountain town. Um, so for me, anytime I'm having people in that aren't from the area is I'm usually just like, let's, let's hop in the car and go to DC cause it's three hours away. Um, and there's a lot of stuff to do there. Whereas there's a lot of state parks where I live, but you don't spend money in a state park. You just park your car and then do whatever you want to do. So it's either local, which doesn't cost, or I have to go somewhere to, to spend the, the money that we're being asked about. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarstamp. Head over to tarstamp.com slash BSD Now and start backing up your machine. So Tarstamp was designed originally uh, because Colin wanted to back up his laptop even while he was on the road. The problem with backing up your laptop on the road with traditional backups is that A, you don't necessarily trust the network you're connected to to be backing up your sensitive data, and B, you only have you know, access to the free Wi-Fi or whatever, you can't upload a lot of data. So uh, Tarstamp is designed to segment and deduplicate your data locally uh, and then compress it to make as little uh, amount of data as possible that contains all the changes since your last backup and ship those off to Tarstamp. And it encrypts them all with the keys that you provide on your machine uh, so that 
nobody sniffing on the network and nobody uh, who takes over Tarsnap servers in the cloud or, you know, uh, arrests Colin and tries to force him to do stuff can ever read your, your files because only you have the key. So, you know, it's a feature that you can, if you lose the key on purpose, uh, none of that data can ever be restored. So don't lose the key by accident because you're in the same situation as if you did it on purpose, the data is useless. Uh, but that's a feature, right? It's the only way to be paranoid and sure that no one else can read your backup is that this is the only key that can decrypt this backup and I have to not lose it. And I have to not let anybody else have it. And that's all there is to it. And uh, Tarsnap will be secure. Um, and they give you the source code for the client so you can prove that it does exactly uh, what they say it does. And you can compile it yourself, but you don't have to. It's available in the package manager of literally every OS uh, that we could think of. Uh, and it's very portable code if there's some OS we couldn't think of. And the best part is it's pay-as-you-go. So you put in money and you start doing backups uh, and you get alerts when you're running out of money. Uh, you can never get uh, a bill from Tarstat. All you get is a tax receipt. Uh, if, you had to, if you're Canadian, you have to pay sales tax. Uh, but it comes as part of the deposit. Uh, but it means unlike other cloud providers, you can't get a surprise bill when you backed up more than you thought you were going to or something. Uh, Tarsnap will never use more money than you put into it. Uh, and therefore you always have that control over how much money gets spent on your backups. Uh, the number one rule with Tarsnap is start using it. <laughs> it can't help you if you don't use it. Uh, so you hopefully liked our interview that we did with ourselves or you with us and our answers probably sparked some interesting maybe discussions or ideas for late Christmas gifts or whatever. Uh, and we'll probably do these again if there's interest from the audience. Uh, that's you. And so let us know at feedback at bsdnow.tv. Give us your feedback there. Or for future episodes that we're going to do in the new year, we also need your questions of course, about BSD and tech that you uh, have us answer, hopefully. And so we leave you with this episode. Have a nice Christmas. Happy holidays. And we have one more episode for you next week. That's our New Year's episode. So stay tuned for that because that's also a bit special. Mm -hmm.